0: amen Christ is risen there we go amen pray with me we should receive that by faith once again that it was your delight and your good pleasure to rescue your people Jesus were mindful of your passion the fact that you were tortured crucified the worst that humanity could produce you endured shame, suffering, and the part that we'll never fully understand is the moments that you were separated from your father, that you endured that separation, which is really what we merit. We merit that separation. We deserve to be eternally separated from God for our hearts are so rebel, but you endured that separation so we could have communion, what our souls long for, the object of our desires, communion with the living God and his Son, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. So I just pray, Lord, as we open up the Word of God today, we confess our deep need for food that is supernatural, and we need the living Word of God. So Holy Spirit, come do what only you can do, and that is you come and you give revelation. We just declare as your people that um, contrary to the materialism of the age, which says that everything that we can know can be ascertained by the five senses, we say we need revelation that comes from God. So we ask, come and give that revelation in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 (laughs) Thank you, Sean. So everybody loves a good story. Isn't that true? We all love a good story. After this service, I'll go with my wife to my parents-in-law and uh, my mother also come up there, and there'll probably be about 25 or 30 of us gathered today. And you know what we're going to do is we're going to share stories. That's how we relate to each other. It's how we talk to each other. It's how we share with each other. We share stories of what's going on. I have a confession to make. <clears throat> there is a pile of books next to my bed, and many of them have to do with how do we improve church? How does church leadership get better? How should we do elders? All this good stuff. And... Um, <clears throat> That pile of books doesn't get visited by me too much, sadly. Because you know what I prefer? I prefer good stories about people. And so actually, just as a matter of fact, I'm reading um, an autobiography of Ted Sorensen. And those of you guys who are old enough to remember, Ted Sorensen was one of the aides to JFK. And I just love a good story. I want to know, how did things, how did they progress? You know, what happened? What was it like for the man who was... JFK's aid from his senatorial days all the way into the presidency. That's, that's stuff that actually feeds me. I like hearing about what is going on. What about you? What's your favorite story? You pay big bucks, Amazon.com, don't you, to get a story? You pay really big bucks at AMC Lowe's to see a good story on the, on the uh, screen, don't you? My wife and I pay a decent amount to Netflix Every month, because we like to hear and see good stories. What's your favorite story? Have you read something lately? Have you seen something that's really gripped you, you know, in the last few months? Has there been a powerful film or book that's grabbed a hold of you? The question I have for us today is, is it possible? Because humanity has been telling itself stories year after year after year, Is it possible that the kind of typical archetypal story that we tell points to something bigger? Perhaps the reason that we're always telling the same story to each other is because it reflects a big story, the story of the ages. My friend, Jaron Foster, he is becoming a master storyteller. I met Jaron when he was a freshman. And actually, as we got to know each other, a a tragedy unfolded in his own life. And he's going through a story of his own. But Jaron's got a real prophetic edge using the media of film to be able to tell stories. I remember sitting in his dorm room when kind of an aha moment had come to him. He was reading, there he is, I finally found you, I located you in the crowd. <clears throat> it's not hard since he's almost seven foot tall. But <clears throat> I had trouble nonetheless. I remember sitting in the dorm room and Jaron had a book on story. And he was able to. Uh, you know, the author kind of went through, here's, here's how stories go, right? And we have the, archetyp- the archetypical story. The main arc is usually protagonist, encounters some sort of villain or trouble or challenge, overcomes, and in the process of overcoming is transformed. Now, there's other stories out there. You know, especially the 20th century brought us things like the theater of the absurd, you know, where just... Because of the craziness of life and uh, kind of our inability to comprehend pain and things, sometimes authors would go to kind of non-archetypal stories. But Jaron was able to say, isn't it interesting that it's the archetypal story that usually resonates with us? We always want the hero to win. And again, my question for us today is, maybe, maybe something is embedded in our souls in humanity so deep it points to the story. I'd like to share what I believe to be the story of the ages. And it's a story in four acts, so I just want you to follow through with me, and we're even going to have an intermission. We're going to have a little musical interlude after act two, if you're okay with that. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. Act one. I believe act one starts with a longing, and it's the longing to be a part of something bigger, way bigger than ourselves. I have a very strong memory. You know how sometimes our emotions are what give strong memories, you know, give us strong memories. We have an emotional association. We'll have an incredible emotional association with being in my, uh, my apartment during college, my apartment complex. It's called Baylor Landing. It doesn't exist anymore. It's actually a large parking lot now. But I was in the midst of a college ministry that was really experiencing a move of God. When I showed up as a freshman, it might have been 80 or 100 people. But as I was at this time a junior or senior, it might have been three or 400 people. A lot of us began to associate together, and so a lot of us lived in the same apartment complex. But I remember some Saturday night, just kind of sitting in my apartment, and I knew that like these cool people were doing something over here, like those apartments were getting together, and I knew that those cool people over there were getting together, and they were doing something fun. And somehow, as social things go, I hadn't gotten invited to either of them. And I remember just being like, Well, this stinks. I'm not invited. And so I just have that memory of a longing of there's something bigger and better going on and I want to be a part. Don't you? You know isn't it why we sometimes it's why we get involved in church at times. It's why we join the military. It's why we like something in Facebook because we are longing to be a part of a cause or something bigger than ourselves. The Bible gives us a little snapshot into the coolest people in the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've got it going on. I'm telling you, they're the cool people in the apartment complex, and you want to hang out with them. In Proverbs 8, we've got a little picture of what was going on um, before creation, and I want to share it with you. Proverbs is just uh, some wisdom literature from the Jewish tradition. <clears throat> and listen to this little tidbit we get. It says this. I'm going to start in Proverbs 8, 22. It says, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. And the me who's speaking here is wisdom. Okay, Proverbs is wisdom literature. So wisdom is saying, I was brought forth first. Now in the New Testament, a writer named Paul, a guy who planted a lot of churches and really defined a lot of our theology for us, Paul said, Christ has become for us the wisdom of God. So when I read Proverbs 8, I go, ooh, this wisdom, I know who it is. It's actually Jesus, Okay. So remember, we're talking about here. we got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've got something going on. Let's see what they got going on. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before He made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there when He set the heavens in place. When He marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, When he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters could not overstep his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. This whole creation litany is going on. And now listen to this. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit having a great time together. Jesus says, then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing this whole world and delighting in mankind. In other words, the Father and the Son in the communion of the Holy Spirit were having a great time creating the earth and creating you and me. And in that Garden of Eden, our longing to be a part of something bigger is found. Isn't it great that God gave us? The the Genesis account says that God gave us a um, garden to till. In other words, He didn't just provide everything for us, but He gave us the capacity to create and cultivate. Indeed, He gave us the mandate to cultivate and create as we are created in his image. And so you and I, this act one of this story is, we're just created with a longing to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, a longing that is ultimately found in Eden in a certain sense. Do you feel it? you ever feel that longing? Curtain close. Curtain open. Act two. Act two Things are not as they should be, right? Things are not the way they should be. They're just not. Can I share with you the headlines from Tuesday, CNN? Let's get a picture. Are things the way they should be? Here's re- These are CNN's headlines <clears throat> on Tuesday. No signs that the Syrian military withdrawing from population centers. You guys are watching the news. You know that there's an uprising going on in Syria And it seems like the government is not relenting in their oppression of that uprising. Second headline, body of missing barista found in Anchorage. Okay, there's a Starbucks girl who was last seen walking away from Starbucks with a man. Now they found her body in a lake. Third headline, Reuters was kicked out of Iran for calling female ninjas assassins. That's kind of funny, okay? A journalistic news service got kicked out because they saw some Iranian women doing like parkour type things, dressed up in ninja suits, and Reuters wrongly assumed that they were assassins. Actually, they were just doing martial arts for fun. Okay. Next headline. 78 tortured bodies found in Syrian hospital. Okay. So again, in the Syrian uprising, we've got 78 bodies were found of these rebels against the government. Next headline, three people, including two Fort Bliss soldiers. Fort Bliss is just outside of El Paso, Texas. They're missing after a kayaking trip. Got three people missing. Next one, maybe you remember this. A service was planned for the seven college students who were killed at a small Christian college in Oakland, California. That Christian college was mostly um, Korean students who went there. And one of the former students um, went ballistic and um, killed seven of his former students. Classmates. And this next one is surely a sign of the apocalypse. Kentucky won the NCAA title. <laughs> <clears throat> this is coming from a Baylor bear, okay? <laughs> so, Lady Bears got it, but the uh, Man Bears couldn't do it <clears throat> this year. And last one, don't you love the government? The GSA, the, uh, the Government Service Administration, had resigned after spending $822,000 on a 300 person seminar in Vegas. Thank you, federal government. Glad that for their seminar, each person got about $3,000 spent on them. Awesome. Things are not as they seem, or things are not as they should be. Things are not as they should be. But you don't need the news or the headlines to tell you that. I'm sure your own experience verifies that there is pain, there is challenge, and things are not as they should be. Our very own Josh Allen is not here today. He's gone home to New York. Renee McCauley is not with us today. She's at Hope Chapel Ipswich. But the reason is because yesterday the um, youth leader of Hope Chapel passed away. And I'm sorry if some of you are getting this news from me in this way. But on Friday night, night, Renee and Josh led their Good Friday service with this guy, a wonderful man named Joshua Hicks, student at Gordon-Conwell, leading um, the youth ministry there. Josh had an allergic reaction to something early Saturday night, and he is gone. The world is not as it should be. Things are messed up. What about you? Your own health problems, emotional breakdowns, family, friends. Maybe there's places where you're wounded and you're hurt. You've experienced rejection and pain in your life. You know, it usually comes through relationship. And maybe there's just fear and shame in your own life. You're not proud of things you've done or what you've been. The point is, things are not as they should be. You are opposed. The biblical explanation, one of the biblical explanations is that you are opposed. It's hinted at in the prophet Isaiah a few hundred years before Christ. It's really confirmed in this great picture that we get in the last book of the Bible. It's called Revelation, written probably about 50 or 60 years after Jesus' death. One of Jesus' disciples, John, got a vision from heaven and what he confirmed was that there is war in heaven and that the great enemy, the devil, Satan, was kicked out of heaven and with him a third of the angels. And there, what they do is they wage war against you and me who are created in the image of God. Now, whether you believe or not in that picture that reality is ultimately up to you but I can't think of a better explanation when I think of these headlines when I think of the pain in my own life I just think there is a personal demonic force that is against we who are created in the image of God and then we have to look at the villain within right are we not all aware of the villain within the biblical name for it is idolatry And it basically looks like this, that you and I were created to worship God. But in our fallenness, in living in this world where things are not as we want them to be, things are not as they should be, we go to every other thing to satisfy our hearts. Right? I don't know about you, but don't you ever have the thought, gosh, if I just had sexual intimacy, if I just had relational or emotional intimacy with this person then my heart would be happy and it would, start, it would stop hurting. If I only had that car, or if I finally got to this salary structure with this much health insurance, then finally Kelsey and I would have relief. Or if I only was this person, if I had this identity or that career, then I would be secure. That's idolatry. We're always thinking. Now again, there's nothing against dreaming, there's nothing gets moving on to the next, you know, all that God's made you to be and do. But the problem is our hearts are always deceived, thinking that if we just had this, that, or the other, it'd be okay. There's a villain within, too. There is a villain within. We are opposed from without, and at times we're opposed from within. Again, that's why when God gave his commandments, where he made a covenant with Israel, he said, hey, for commandment number one don't have any other gods before me and I'm telling you this because you're going to be happy if you don't have any other gods before me but in our fallenness we're always thinking something else will make us happy that's the curtain closing on act 2 so act 2 closes with the prophet Isaiah saying we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned his own way the apostle Paul would go on to say we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God We're all in need of a rescue. And so that brings us to the opening of Act 3, the rescue. And to get a feel for the magnitude of this rescue, for the scope of what God had in mind, you got to start thinking, again, epic story, right? We tell stories to each other. Think of Normandy, okay? Full scale, biggest amphibious invasion ever to happen in mankind. Think Star Wars okay, the rebels against the evil empire. Think Lord of the Rings. It's the Fellowship of the Rings. Guys getting together saying, we're gonna do this thing. We're gonna get the ring back to where it belongs so that its evil power is neutralized. Just all the epic tales, they're just reflections of the great story, that epic rescue that God executed in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the lies are, right, what happens when something crazy like Josh Hicks passing away yesterday happens, right, what do we start to think? We just think, God, you don't care. You don't care about a rescue for me or for us in humankind. Where are you, God? Right? That's what we often are thinking. God, do you care about my life? Do you care about my soul? Do you care about my situation? That's the lies that start to filter into our heart, but what's the truth? The truth is we look to the cross of Jesus Christ and we see the best and the most important rescue operation ever done. Imagine that God himself, to enter into your pain and to enter into your act two, what he did was he took on the form of a man and he wasn't just cheating, as I talked about last week. He wasn't just like, hey, I'll disguise myself as a man. He fully took on humanity, allowed himself to enter into the corruption and the twistedness of this world. And the amazing thing is he lived a totally uncorrupted life. The one human to ever live an uncorrupted, untwisted life was Jesus. And then as I mentioned in my opening prayer, he undertook the worst that you and I could give. The worst that humanity could come up with as far as the torture, the mocking, and the crucifixion. If you haven't seen the movie, The Passion, I encourage you to see it, to just get a a better slice of what that was like. Jesus endured this so that you and I could be brought to God. Now, the proof in the pudding, the rescue, for the rescue to take effect, for the rescue to have its power, the proof really is in the resurrection, is it not? And so you and I, we need to wrestle with this, this historical event, the resurrection. And I encourage you to do so. And I point out to you people like the journalist Lee Strobel. Do you know his story? He's written The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ. On my own journey, it was Josh McDowell and his, his book, More Than a Carpenter. I came to Baylor as a freshman, having grown up in the church, but then having a real existential crisis, thinking, am I going to believe this thing? Do I really want to put my faith in Jesus Christ because I see what Jesus is asking? He's asking me to give my life to him and to follow him wholeheartedly. But if it's not true, then, you know, what kind of integrity do I have if I don't believe this? So for me, I had to wrestle through the resurrection. And it came down to people like Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell outlining different historical realities. The lives of the disciples being the one that kind of nailed it for me. In other words, when you look at the 12 disciples, one killed himself out of remorse, right? Judas, because he had betrayed the Son of Man, Jesus, to the Romans. The other 11, 10 of them all died martyrs' deaths. 10 of these 11 went to their own graves, murdered also like Jesus was, saying, we've seen the resurrected Jesus, We have encountered the living Christ. The one who didn't, John, about whose revelation I spoke earlier, we get this picture of the enemy. It said that he died of natural causes, but he had been in exile a while. He got jailed. He got some serious jail time for what he believed. That's compelling. Is it compelling to you that our whole calendar starts at Jesus' birth? Is it compelling to you that the largest paper that you get during the week is on a Sunday. It may sound a little strange, but the whole Sunday, the fact that Sabbath moved from Saturday to Sunday, something's happened in culture and civilization. So just as a student of history, you need to start to look at how did, why did Christianity affect things so, in such a massive way in history? These are compelling things. Now, that doesn't prove the resurrection, but it is compelling to say, what happened What affected these people 2,000 years ago that totally shaped the culture that you and I live in, a lot of which we take for granted? It's compelling. So I had my own wrestling, and I came to the conclusion that, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. And I came to the conclusion that Jesus offers me a rescue, and every other religion offers rules. Do you hear that? Jesus offers a rescue. Every other religion is about rules. I know that might be hard in this age of tolerance, right, which is actually not tolerance. It's really the intolerance of tolerance, as D.A. Carson has finally said, right? Tolerance used to mean we accept people with other views. Now tolerance means if you don't accept my view, then you're not tolerant. It's really twisted how it's become. But anyway, so I realized that saying that other religions are rules and only Jesus is a rescue that, that, that hits some of our tolerant sensibilities of the 21st centuries, but I just say it's true. I've been to North Africa, and I've been to the Middle East, and I've spoken with Muslims, and I've spoken with Hindus, and as they unpack their systems to me, I say, Wow, sounds like you don't know. You It know, sounds like you've no assurance of what's going on. It sounds like you're just on a system of merit here, and, if, and you don't know. I'm, I'm, spe- I'm thinking of one conversation that I had just the last time we were in Northwest Africa with a Muslim brother who said, um, he's, I said, well, do you know? You know when, when do you know that you're out, your, your, your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad? And he said, well, I don't know. I won't know until I die. And he, says, and he says, I'm just being a crazy man now. I'm a young man. I'm sleeping around. I'm drinking. I'm doing all that now. But later, as I get older in life, I'll start to balance out the good deeds. I'll go to prayer more. You know, I'll, I'll go to a mosque more, and I'll balance it out. I said, wow, that seems like a really hopeless situation to be in, don't you think? I said, my God, Jesus offers me a rescue. I can know. Because I know that none of my deeds will measure up to the righteousness and holiness of God. He's offered a rescue. Jesus has offered a rescue. And that's what I need, his rescue. (coughs) Paul wrote it this way in Romans 5.8. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? Because just before that, Paul had kind of written this argument. He'd said, you know, someone might die for a righteous man. Someone else might die for a good man. Like, you know, sometimes we see heroics. People die for others. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, there's nothing really morally good about us. Christ died for us. That's act three. That's the rescue. That's what we celebrate today. And that's the thing that every one of us must wrestle with, is this rescue for me. Curtain close on the rescue. Act four. And I'll be brief here. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. Act four is we have a rescue at hand. We are able to be rescued, but things are still not quite as they should be. There is the happily ever after, right? Every story ends with guys riding after the sunset. He's got the girl and everything's good, right? isn't that how your stories end that you like the best ones unless you're like me you go to Paris you see all the dark films and they all kind of are like they end in sadness and there are these anti-plots that are depressing whatever <clears throat> Anyways, it's interesting sometimes but <clears throat> not, really, not really satisfying there is the happy ever after that's God's promise to us we're living in a tension of a now but a not yet that a consummation is coming listen also to what Paul says this is what gives us hope The Apostle Paul, saying that we are longing for things to be made well, for things to be made perfect, he says this. (laughs) He says, we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We're eagerly awaiting our adoption as daughters. The redemption of our bodies, right? Heaven is not just going to be an esoteric kind of fluffy place. It's going to be real. It's going to be real. Actually, as C.S. Lewis posited, it's going to be more real in heaven than things are here. He says this. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In other words, the very nature of hope, the very nature of us waiting, as the world kind of crumbles around us and we're hoping for God's redemption, the nature of it is that it is yet to come. And so there's a part of that. Act four is there is a consummation to come that we have not yet experienced, but will experience, and that's what gives us hope. It's a great hope to have. It's bizarre to me when I speak with other people and I just think, gosh, you have no hope for your life. You know, it just, it just hits me hard that, wow, I'm blessed that I have this hope that even if things go crazy in our government, if things go crazy on the earth, if things go crazy here and there, I've got a hope that consummation will come. Jesus will come. And I say consummation, I'm looking over here at the Neuners. It's very much a marriage analogy, okay? The church is called the bride, Jesus is the bridegroom. The reason why marriage is so fun—sorry, their, their wedding ceremonies come up in a couple of months here. The reason why marriage is so fun is because it's such a picture of what will come. A consummation will come. The bride, the church, we will meet our lover, Jesus, face to face, and everything will be made right. What it said in Revelation, actually, the book of Revelation, again written by John, he says that every tear, God's going to wipe away every tear. God's going to—he's um, just going to make things right. Wipe away the tears healing us of our pain. That's what he's going to do. That's why I get excited about weddings. <laughs> Just a picture of an eternal reality, right? It's a story. A wedding is a story. A story that we keep telling to each other. Things will get better. But how you respond to that rescue is the key question today. And I actually invite you all to stand. Why don't you stand as we respond together? How you are responding to that rescue is the key question today. How are you responding to this story? Are we aware of that longing that we see in Act One, of longing for something bigger and better to be a part of? Are we super aware of the brokenness inside us and around us? Are we fully receiving the rescue that Jesus has for us today? Resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says, is inside us who believe. Are we walking in it fully? Are we longing for His appearing, as the Bible says? Is there a longing for the coming of Christ, for Himself? for Jesus himself to wipe away the tears from our eyes, every longing for act four to happen. Holy Spirit, stir up in us again uh, appreciation for the story of the ages.